Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is a Soul Fire production. Good morning. Don't you think hate when that little thing goes round and round and round? <laughs> We're talking about when something doesn't load on your computer and that's what's happening this morning. Yes, I hate it. I don't Round. like it. I try not to say hate. I don't like it. Yeah, you're right. Hate's a little strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I try really hard not to say that word. Yeah. So I have Billy, the uh, air conditioner guy here. So he's going to be walking in and out <laughs> through the screen, uh, <laughs> at least at least for now. But he's going to be on his uh, twinkle toes and very quiet. And uh, we'll pause if we have to. Uh, I got a lot of stuff today, Bliss. I know. A lot. It's going to be a great episode, you guys. Stay till the very end. We're going to be talking about um, fetal monitoring today. Yes, and a great article by uh, uh, Steve Clark, who is a guy that actually, I think he was either my fellow or he was an attending at County when I was a resident there. So he's, uh, just, I've always admired his work. So we'll get to that at the end. Um, first, uh, to bring you up to date on the week, uh, you know, yeah. I, I left you, it was really nice. <laughs> face. Yes. It was really nice to spend some time up there with you. Yeah. We had a really nice time. I agree. We went, uh, for a bike ride and we went hiking and we took Zoe for a, a nice walk to the bluffs and we saw, what was it? Were those pelicans? What we saw? Yes. Yeah. Oh God. Formation of pelicans was very cool. Flew right um, over us. Yeah. They, yep. And they didn't poop on us. So, <laughs> <laughs> although that's good luck. That's what they say. I'm not so sure that it's good luck. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the skeptic uh, and the optimist. <laughs> I think that's like, that's like saying, uh, you know, a fast heartbeat is a boy and a slow heartbeat's a girl or something or vice versa or whatever it is. All right. All right. I don't think it really means a whole lot. Uh, what else happened to you this week? Anything? Any news from Santa Barbara? Um, well, the, I would like to talk about my birth that I had. Let's do that. I mean, uh, people will, by the time they hear this podcast, will have heard our podcast live, which will be out next week or last week. Yeah, yeah. Which <laughs> and, is uh, you know, if you guys like that, then send us a couple of emails. Maybe we'll try to do it again. Maybe I get this down in Los Angeles. We get to do it down here. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, if they want to bring us to Hawaii or you know, the Caribbean or something like that. That sounds fun. Yeah. When this podcast, um, when this podcast comes out, I'll be in Sedona, which will be nice. Yes. Right? Yes. We'll be seeing my friend Fabiola and her beautiful spot that's in, you actually are sleeping in a vortex. How cool is that? That'll just fit <laughs> with my whole life. My whole life has sort of been a vortex. Not of the, <laughs> not of the, uh, uh, earthy kind though. <laughs> and there's a beautiful beautiful walk you can go right down and see the cathedral rock which is a famous um formation there in sedona and and a beautiful like um river i guess yeah i'm gonna get i'm gonna get there two days early to spend a little bit of time there because i have to leave immediately after Mm -hmm. uh because i'm coming back to la to cover dr flores who's got a vacation coming up so Okay. I'm going to be doing about nine days of actual office and possibly birthing uh, back in LA. So um, 
for that before I then head off to do something else because I'm always doing something else. Seems like it these days. Really so when do. you were here, this is the this is the life of a of a um, birth worker. I've been waiting and waiting and waiting for this baby to come. The baby was born um, right around 42 weeks, depending on which due date you're you're looking at. Um, and uh, first time mom. And so I'd been waiting and waiting and she had had signs for weeks. And we went and saw Dr. Drake and did a um, post-dates uh, biophysical profile. And I have short fingers. This is one of my downfalls. So whenever I have another provider's fingers that are bigger than mine, I'm like, can you do a sweep? Um, because you tend to do a better job and she's got these amazingly long fingers. Um, so she did a sweep um, for my client who had decided that that was something she wanted. And she was already four centimeters dilated. And, you know, we had had signs the baby had dropped, the, you know, like all kinds of stuff. And her mom had had a fast early labor with her. So we were kind of just expecting that that could possibly happen again. So there we were waiting on this baby. And um, the next day we were going to kind of start the natural induction protocols that I've talked about before on the podcast. And that morning, the night of our podcast, our live podcast, you're in town. The only night I really have something, you know, important on my schedule that, you know, I don't want to miss. Um, she's having contractions and we were like, oh, well, we'll see how this goes. I might have to run out. I might not make it, you know, the whole thing. And, um, I had asked you because you were in town, if you would assist me because the woman I had had on call to be my assist had tested positive for COVID a week or so before. And we were, you know, weren't sure if she was going to be able to come eventually, but that night she wasn't. So, um, you were so on I call. said, yes, I said, yes. You did say yes. And she was very excited. And, and, um, we were going to have this amazing team, um, available and I waited. So anyways, we made it through the podcast. She didn't call us. She was having contractions all night. She threw up. Her doula was there. You know, those nights when you're like, um, trying to sleep, but you can't quite sleep because you know, someone's going to call you at any minute that's, that's that night. And I didn't sleep very well at all. And I know that I knew that you were needing to leave early. So I was kind of like calculating the whole time, like, Oh, you know, it's going to work. So the morning came and went and she, her contractions petered out again. Um, and, uh, you and I went on our lovely walk and then, um, I went by there later in the evening because she was having you know, those feelings like what is happening? Why am I not having this baby? Why do I keep getting these things that stop and start? So I went over with my um, student, Anastasia, and we had a talk with her and we were just like, you know, this is just part of your journey and we can start to meddle with things. You know, I can do another sweep. We can start the inductions now. Um, you know, you could even go and get induced into the, at the hospital, if that's something that you'd like to do at this point. And, you know, we had a really nice talk and her mom was like, why don't we just go out of the house and get some ice cream? And so Anastasia and I went off to a little party, um, and, you know, we're thinking, well, maybe tonight. And while we were there, we were, you know, I was thinking about wrapping things up and we get a call from her that she was getting ice cream and her water broke. <laughs> she had a huge contraction and her water broke. And I was like, great, this is good progress. You know, we're moving along. So we went home to get some rest 
And her mom called and said, she's vomiting. She's shaking. Things are really intense over here. And I said, great, call your doula. Um, I'll see you in a bit. And I decided, you know what? I think I'll sleep better if I move Hope over there. So I moved Hope over to their house, which was only about three minutes away so that I could rest in front of their house. And I went upstairs to kind of check on them and she was about to have baby. (laughs) So um, I set up the tub. We heard grunting sounds. Um, Again, the first time mom um, and we got her into the tub, you know, that walk they're often like, I don't know if I want to get in the tub. You know, I said, do you want me to set up the tub? Would you like to have a birth in the tub still? She said, yes. And then it was like, you can do it after this contraction. Let's go. So we get in the tub and I, she pushed maybe for another 10 minutes in the tub and her baby was born. It was amazing. Never had to check her again. None of that stuff. So it just shows you like labor sometimes meanders and when it's ready to go on its own, if you give it the time and the patience and the space and get that mental stuff out of the way, as you like to say, um, it works works. So it was a great birth and I'm glad that we got to spend our time together and got to have that baby. And you know what the funny thing is? The very next morning, my assistant texted me and said, Hey, I tested for COVID. And I was like, Oh man, just missed it. So anyway, it was awesome. Well, I can just see your enthusiasm. Um, I get to see you. People are listening. They can hear your enthusiasm. Uh, you just radiate when you talk about a birth that goes like that. So I love that. A couple of things I made, I made notes as I usually do when you're, when you're monologuing. So um, <laughs> <laughs> you said, you said how people don't get sleep. Uh, you know, when you have somebody in labor, you're thinking about somebody in labor, you don't sleep really well. Well, that's the bane of the existence of pretty much every birth worker uh, mm-hmm. for their entire career. So that's not something that's that unique, but I totally get that. No. No, then, yeah. Then you said that I had to get up in the morning and leave early, but you prevented me from leaving early <laughs> <laughs> by taking me on a 20-minute walk that lasted an hour and a half, but that's okay. <laughs> and then I'm wondering, because we had some brilliant people that write, wrote into us when we were talking about, I don't know, it was stalled labor, whatever it was, and they said about calcium deficiency and giving ice people cream. ice cream. Right. And you just said that. She went out and got some ice cream, and then she broke her bag of water. It's like... Well, maybe that's the secret. So we've got to try this more often. And if other people are listening and you have people with stalled labors or this prodromal thing dragging on, let us know if you give them ice cream, um, uh, if it makes a difference. By the way, any specific specific flavor did she have? Do you know? I didn't ask. But, you know, I also thought it was the oxytocin, right? Because when she suggested ice cream or her mom suggested ice cream, she was like, yeah, that sounds good. So I thought, you know, just well, get combination out of-, of getting up, walking around, being oxytotic and um, <laughs> and having the calcium charged sugar ice cream thing. So that's yeah. a good, really good and deal. Not, not watching the pot, so to speak, not chasing the labor. Well, here's a shock that you'll be shocked. But I had a birth this week, too. I am shocked. I know. Was it fun? I'm shocked. I'm shocked. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I got called by our good friend, Lindsay, uh, down in Orange County. Uh, that she had somebody that had been pushing for three hours and just needed some help getting a vacuum. You know, she thought, could I come and do a vacuum? And she called Dr. Flores. Dr. Flores was, uh, it was Father's Day. So I don't know, Dr. Flores was busy. Mm-hmm. I had plans with my kids for the afternoon. We were going to go bowling and then grab some food. Um, but uh, I put, I called my kids and I asked them if it was okay if I pushed it back. 
So we were supposed to meet at one. I pushed it back till four and I drove down to Orange County. Mm-hmm. And um, she was pushing really, really well. And when she pushed, she brought it way down, but she just couldn't get around the corner. And she had really strong perineum, a big, you know, a, a huge distance between her anus and her vagina. So she had a huge perineum, the kind that you really, really think that, you know, in olden days, you, you should probably cut an episiotomy for her. Mm-hmm. So I, I injected with lidocaine, but I didn't, I put the vacuum on, we were able to get the baby out, but it was really, really tough. And in hindsight, it might've been a little easier had we cut a small piece. Yeah. I mean, she had some lacerations inside, but her perineum did not tear at all. So mm-hmm. that was really good because that's the part that really hurts the most when you're healing. But when she had a vacuum, she had a nine, she was a tiny little person, nine mm-hmm. pound, two ounce baby. It went beautifully. And so I got to do the first birth that I've actually think I've done in three months, maybe. Yeah. Trying to think if there's anybody else. I can't think of anybody else. So that was sort of fun. And and then I, then I had a little bit of, of stargazing because her husband uh, is a major league baseball player. Oh, yeah. So I had no idea. And it didn't matter. And I don't know who he is because he doesn't play, you know, he plays for a, a, a team up back east. But that was sort of fun. And so I, when I met my kids for bowling, by the way, on the way to bowling, my daughter texts me and says, how far out are you? And I said, I'm about 10 minutes out. And she said, well, don't rush. You're in, you're in second place. <laughs> they were bowling for you. Yeah. Each one of them was <laughs> taking a frame for me as it we went along. And when I got there, um, I was in second place. Uh, we were in the fifth, they were in the fifth frame. Um, because you only have the, you know, in those nowadays, when you rent a lane, you, you rent it for a time. It used to be, you just paid for how long you bowl. I mean, for how many lanes you lines you bowled, but now you rent time. So we had six people bowling. We got one game in. That was it. <laughs> oh yeah. So, um, but it was fun. So I got, you know, and they, so they're on their phone, looking up the, the baseball player, looking up his stats and stuff like that. So that was kind of fun for my, my family. Happy Father's Day. Yeah. So then when I got home, I got asked by, um, I think Lindsay or maybe somebody from the family to, if I could give them a super bill to, so they could bill out what they paid me for. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to look up a vacuum vaginal birth because that shouldn't be hard, right? The codes, right. Yeah, the mm-hmm. ICD-10 codes. Yeah, so, yeah. So um, I looked and I looked and I looked and, and, and I found this correspondence thing where people write in asking questions. One of them says, um, Dakota vacuum assisted vaginal delivery in ICD-9, I always use 669.51 but I'm having trouble finding a code that translates into ICD-10. I was advised to use the code 066.5, but I am not comfortable with that code as it states it resulted in use of forceps or C-section. I was wondering if 080 would work as it states with minimal or no assistance. Has anyone else run into this and how did you code it? There's no code for a successful vacuum delivery in the ICD-10 series. That would be that simple. There's a It must be a code you use for delivery not otherwise specified or some weird thing, but you'd think that there'd be, it'd be that simple. Wow. And there's not, because everything is, remember we did a podcast called Complicating the Simple and it seems like it comes up all the time. And just on that note, real briefly, um, my bank account was compromised when I was traveling before. So I had to switch bank accounts and my, one of my insurances is automatically withdrawn from my bank account. So I had to call them to change 
the charge. It was Medicare Part D because I'm on Medicare now, and it's it's a pharmaceutical thing. It's seven dollars and fifty cents a month for my Silver Script insurance plan. And so I I, I asked the question, uh, how many operators does it take to change your bank account? <laughs> <laughs> and the answer for the, the answer this time was only three. <laughs> Three plus a lot of a lot of intervening elevator music while I'm while I'm on hold. <laughs> My least favorite thing to do, I swear. Yeah, it oh, took God. you know I was on for one minute, then I, I somebody picked up, and then I was transferred to another country. I'm sure uh, for seven minutes on hold, and then I spoke to that person, but she wasn't authorized <laughs> to do what do. So I I said I asked a rhetorical question. Well, why do you think the first operator connected me to you if you're not authorized to do it? She said. I, I said, no, don't, don't, don't answer. Don't answer. It's just connect me to the right person. So then I waited another four minutes and I finally got Mr. Linden and Mr. Linden did a good job and, and got it changed. I'm hoping, cause I don't, I won't know till next month when they do an automated withdrawal again. We'll see. Good. <laughs> okay. That, that didn't was just, you have, didn't you have some Instagram issues too? Oh yeah. I forgot to say that that's also on my list. Yeah. I have an Insta, I got hacked on Instagram. I think, I don't know if it's called hacked or hijacked or what would it be called i don't know but it's it's shitty duplicated somebody made a duplicate account and started sending uh -huh. out messages about peace and love and 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 religious and god and stuff like that and immediately people knew that wasn't me <laughs> <laughs> they're like what's going on so they they sent me messages right away and um they reported it and I, I reported it and and for me to report it i had to send them a copy of my id and stuff like that and it was taken down within an hour of me reporting it. So I'm, I want to praise, I don't praise uh, social media platforms very often uh, because they, they're, they, they do, they don't always do the right thing. Mm -hmm. um, but they were, they fixed that pretty good. Good. Yeah. You know, right after we had that conversation, a, a friend of mine um, sent me a message on Instagram that seemed a little odd. And so I, I texted her because she's a personal friend. And I was like, Hey, what do you need? And she was like, Oh, my account got someone took over my account. So don't respond. And so <laughs> I did respond to that person. And I said, you're a terrible person. This is a really lovely woman. And there's no reason for you to be messing with her. And he's like, how much money does she have? And I had this whole exchange with them about reprimanding this person about what a terrible person they were for what they were doing. <laughs> and then I reported them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't you know, know if it made a difference, but it made me feel good. Yeah, it makes you feel good. These, these things are usually from Africa or Eastern Europe, and, and that's what they do. And um, look at, if it works one in a thousand times, they get somebody, eventually, they, first they start to groom you, and then eventually they'll ask you for money yeah, or something. Exactly. So, right. exactly. Okay, let's get to some letters, because I've got some really important letters here, and maybe Maybe we'll have a word from our sponsor right now, and then and then we'll get to these letters. All right, Stu, it's time to talk about our amazing sponsor, Element, L-M-N-T. That's at drinkelementy.com, drink right. Mm -hmm. And uh, they are a tasty electrolyte drink mix that has everything you need and nothing you don't. None of the BS like us. Yep, everybody knows that you say that now. <laughs> and uh, it's it's really uh, formulated to help anyone with electrolyte needs, but in, but specifically suited to folks who are following a keto, low carb, paleo diet, but also people who are working out. Uh, if you're sweating a lot, if you have a job where you're um, outside, and especially if you're in 
America right now, it's pretty much hot everywhere. Uh, it'll help replace your electrolytes. It's good for laboring women. It's probably good for birth workers. It's good, as you say, for all people. All humans. <laughs> all humans. <laughs> and maybe some non-humans too. Um, so tell them about the um, all of the amazing flavors that they have. They have some well, really fun flavors. Yeah, you, if you go to the drinkelement.com and use the code word instincts, um, you're going to get um, a free sample pack with every order. And uh, I think that, yeah, it's a free sample pack. Um, mm -hmm. And I think uh, the flavors that we talk about all the time your favorite is mango chili. Yeah. But then there's grapefruit salt, uh, watermelon salt. I don't know how they make watermelon. I mean, I wonder how they make a watermelon flavoring because I've never found watermelon flavoring in any popsicle or anything. It actually tastes like watermelon. So I need to try that. So Element, send us some uh, watermelon samples, please. Citrus salt, orange salt, raspberry salt, raw unflavored. That might yeah. be my favorite. That might be my new favorite. Yeah. <laughs> Lemon habanero and chocolate salt. Yum. So it comes in all those flavors. Just go to their website, drinkelement.com. Use the code word birthing instincts. Whatever you order, you're going to get an option for a free sample pack. Sign up, drink it, support them because why bliss? Because it supports the podcast. Thank you so much, you guys. And thanks, Element. Thanks, Element. Okay, so this first letter kind of ties in with our conversation a little bit about Santa Barbara. Um, from last week. From mm -hmm. last week and some of the uh, bullying that was going on that goes on in Santa Barbara. Is going on. That's right. Is going on. Right. Mm -hmm. So this is from, um, she, I, she said I could use her name. Her name's Althea. And she says, I am looking for some help on a few things. The hospital is working hard to shut me down. I'm the only CPM owned birth center in Colorado. Mm -hmm. As I have been vocal against all the propaganda that has been going on, and they are continually turning clients against us. The hospital has made four attempts at shutting us down by reporting to DORA, which is the Department of Regulatory Agencies. Remember, any name that sounds nice, not a good thing. <laughs> okay. It has actually been one particular practice as they tried to open a birth center here in Fort Collins, but they could not get it approved through the city. This naturally upset them as that I did, that I did. They now have been turning clients against us and making them believe that we have not given adequate care to them, like not forcing them to do glucola. Right. <laughs> then encouraging them to turn on us, turn us in as well. And, and they have. Hmm. It is getting absolutely ridiculous. I'm continually spending hours on end and thousands of dollars on responding to these with my lawyer. It is taking me everything not to throw in the towel. Ugh. Anyhow, I would absolutely love your help. One, evidence against performing pelvimetry in order to prove success of having a vaginal birth. Colorado mm -hmm. regulations state the following. The registered nurse, excuse me, the registered direct entry midwife shall perform pelvimetry by 36 weeks gestation. Two, Thoughts on evidence on performing the glucola versus a one-hour postprandial or the fresh test. Thanks so much. Okay? Yeah. So um, here's what I wrote. I wrote, hi, Althea. Hard to remember you are on the right side for the women of your community, and bullying is always a sign of weakness by those with the power when you are being harassed constantly. 
As for pelvimetry, I presume they mean clinical pelvimetry, which is archaic and requires an unnecessary and uncomfortable pelvic vaginal exam. If you have a copy of the exact wording, please send it. And so far, I haven't heard back from her. I am pretty certain the doctors are not required to do this, and many wouldn't know what they were feeling anyway. Anyway, <laughs> The pelvis is not a fixed structure and is smallest when women lay flat on their back. There is good evidence for this in the breach literature. If it's required to document, I would just say upon examination, this mother has an adequate pelvis. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And that's what I would say. So yeah. if, if you have to require that to document it, then just write it down. All right. Has an adequate pelvis and um, uh, is suited for a trial of labor or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. And you know what my my definition of an adequate pelvis is in, in my breach teaching class? Um, so it's a woman with a pelvis. I was going to I was trying to think I knew it was something clever, but I couldn't remember the yeah. exact wording. Yeah. yeah. I mean, unless you've had a crushing car injury mm-hmm. or some weird congenital anomaly. Uh, right. No woman, no woman should be disqualified from giving birth because of what some arbitrary a uh, subjective person says about her pelvis, right? Yes, exactly. As for screening, there's a lot of options alternative to taking the processed glucola, uh, glucola drink. Boy, that got stuck in my throat. Uh, <laughs> Aviva Ram has some data. Remind these obtuse panels that midwives do not think like doctors and often doctors don't think at all. They just follow and regurgitate old patterns. What we need is a group of experts and a nonprofit to support all the small practitioners out there being bullied. Maybe someday soon we will. Great. And then, I sent, her, and then I, sent her, I sent her a link to Aviva Ram's stuff. Great. Awesome. Yeah. Right. So, uh, yeah, that's just something that goes on all the time. All right. So then I have a letter from, um, oh, um, let's, do I want to read Jen's article? Let's see. No, let's we'll we'll wait on this because it it, it has to do with um, Molly's letter. Let me find Molly's letter. Okay, all right. So here's a letter from um, Molly, and I'm not sure Molly's in London. Okay, right. And she says this is about my interview with Allison Royal, where I was on her podcast, or she interviewed me regarding the breast. Oh, she did an article. She wrote an article about breast milk and spike proteins. And I said that I, I wasn't an expert in certain areas of that, but I, we did go off and talk on other tangents about um, the COVID and the COVID vaccine. So Molly writes, Dear Dr. Fishbein, I just watched your interview with Allison Royal on the baby formula shortage. She asked if you had any concerns about, quote, vaccinated, unquote, donor breast milk, and you said not enough was known yet. I was just reading this week that it was now confirmed that vaccinated mothers do pass the spike protein the really toxic part of the virus, plus the one used in the mRNA vaccines is synthetically produced, and some say worse than the natural virus spike protein, to infants in their breast milk, from whence it can potentially damage the babies. Please let me say I'm a huge proponent of breastfeeding. I was born mid-70s to a La Leche League following mother, who proselytized to every new mother she knew about the virtues of breastfeeding. I went through hell myself not to be able to breastfeed my premature daughter. I would never promote not breastfeeding, but if breastfeeding post-vax means passing on pathogenic blood clotting, inducing synthetic spike proteins to newborns, it gives me pause. 
please, please, will you research the evidence of spike proteins being passed in breast milk and whether or not it should make us worry? I have no vested interest in this except for the, my love of humanity. We need more people doing what's right and speaking out about it. Thanks for your time and for your support of keeping these natural processes natural. Nice. So um, I've been looking at it and it seems like it does cross. The problem is we're not going to know. Yeah. The effects. The effects for decades. months, years, decades. Yeah. We yeah. just aren't going to yeah. know. Yeah. But why would we why would we do that? So if a woman got vaccinated while she was pregnant or before she's pregnant, um, I don't think I would not breastfeed my baby because I think the breastfeeding has so much more benefit than not breastfeeding. Yeah. But if I had a choice to get the vaccine and I get the vaccine and I was a woman of reproductive age and I knew what my risk categories were, why the fuck would I ever get the vaccine? You know, it's interesting. As you were talking, I was I was thinking I might ask you, <laughs> I might ask you what your informed consent was because people have been asking me lately, new clients about, you know, they were thinking about getting the booster, and uh, and yours is why the fuck would you ever do that? <laughs> That's your informed consent. <laughs> I can't read it, Stu. Let's keep the dumb fuckery at a minimum today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're gonna change it. our. Are, we're not going to be clean anymore. We're going to be explicit soon. <laughs> no, but what I want to say about that um, is in conjunction with this, which is slightly different, we, we, we can go off on a slight different tangent here about vaccinating uh, your six-month-old. Now that okay. have, now that, Oh, go ahead. And then I have a question for you. It brought it up, a question that um, about what about blood transfusions and being able to get blood without vaccinations. Interesting, right? I don't know if the Red Cross is keeping track of that. I know that Del Bigtree did a big thing about that last year when he had uh, anemia and he flew off to, I think, either the Cayman Islands or some other place that he could get blood that wasn't, um, that was guaranteed not to be from somebody who'd been vaccinated. Uh, he made a concerted effort to do that. I don't know how that works, but I think that's something you should People should consider. And the problem is, is that the mainstream people are not going to be researching this because they don't really want to know. I'm going to look into it. And, and then the other thing, I guess, maybe you could have somebody you knew donate your blood type, their, your blood type donate ahead of time that's not vaccinated for your use if need be. You can do that. You can do directed donor, uh, at least you could in the old days. I, I don't know that you can still do that, but I'm pretty sure that you can. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you know, it, it takes, you can't just, you can't just, if somebody needs, in an accident needs a transfusion, you can't just go in and give your blood because it takes a, several days for them to screen it and process it and prepare it. So it's not like you, you can give it acutely, like in the movies where, they take a needle out of one person's arm and put it directly into the other person's arm. Yeah, got it. Anyways, that's interesting. I think I, think I saw okay. that in, in the new Mad Max movie. I think they did that. But all right. <laughs> um, so this is an article from our, our friend of the podcast and my friend Jennifer Margulis about they're going to vaccinate your six-month-old. So I want to read just a little bit about it. Jen says, I was vaccinated as a child and again as an adult. I've had vaccines against diseases that most Americans have never heard of, like yellow fever. So have I. Hmm. Yeah, I had to get that when I went to volunteer in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. 
I didn't have to get it. Well, yeah, actually, I had to get it. They wouldn't have let me go if I didn't get it. Right. Mm -hmm. Coercion. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Which I needed to live and work in West Africa. I never had a reason to question vaccines. I assumed, like everybody else, that I would vaccinate my children. Why wouldn't I? Then my first baby was born at Crawford Long Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. Our daughter wasn't even an hour old when a postpartum nurse came at us with a needle in hand. The nurse didn't ask our permission. She just started preparing to give our newborn the vaccine against hepatitis B, a sexually, yeah. tra a sexually transmitted disease. Okay. I stopped her. Every cell in my body knew that this nurse who was just following orders was wrong. My husband and I were in a monogamous relationship. We'd been tested for hepatitis B. Neither of us had it. The tiny baby I held in my arms had no possibility of getting this disease unless she had sex, shared body fluids, or used dirty needles with someone infected with it. Mm -hmm. But when I told the nurse I wanted to talk to the pediatrician before deciding, she narrowed her eyes and huffed at me. I'm so grateful for her irrational anger and her inability to give me one good reason to allow her to give my daughter that hepatitis vaccine. Her overly emotional response to my simple request to wait a few days until I could talk to the doctor and get more information about that, the vaccine and its ingredients raised a red flag for me. It started me on a journey of questioning not only vaccines, but every order coming from medical establishment and the government authorities, right? And that's why I think that led her down the path to eventually write the book with Paul Thomas called The Vaccine-Friendly Plan. Mm -hmm. If this hadn't happened to her, I don't know that, it, that, this, that she would have ever become the person that she's become. Um, now that same establishment has outdone itself with a new recommendation. On June 17th, the Food and Drug Administration authorized COVID-19 vaccines for infants, babies, and toddlers. First, a few days ago, an advisory panel voted unanimously in favor of the vaccines for this age group. Now the FDA, as expected, has followed suit. There was still one other hurdle. The CDC must also recommend the shots. And then Dr. Rochelle Walensky, the director of the CDC, has to accept the recommendation, which she did, and which you and I both know was what's called rubber stamping. There was never a question that they weren't going to approve this. Mm -hmm. um, and so Jennifer writes, think kangaroo court, think rigged election. It's all a foregone conclusion. Even though the recommendation's not yet official, the government was already poised and ready with 10 million doses to jab into baby's side. So they had ordered 10 million doses before it was approved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's kind of like, you know, um, <laughs> ACOG recommending the vaccine to pregnant women before there was any data saying it was safe or not safe in pregnant women. Right. You're supposed to wait for the data before you do that. And you're supposed to wait for approval before you then buy a product. Unless you have unless you have some inside in insider information, huh? Hmm. So this is so wrong on so many levels that it's making my sick to my stomach. If you're a thinking person, if you've spent five minutes reading the scientific literature, if you've talked to your friends and family members about the side effects from these vaccines, you feel nauseous too. It wasn't enough to cause myocarditis, pericarditis, Bell's palsy, Guillain-Barre, thrombocytopenia, tinnitus, and sudden death in teens and young adults, not to mention Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, which is what Justin Bieber has. Uh, now we have to cause all this and more in six-month-old babies. For what reason? To prevent what is a mild and benign viral infection in children. But there's the rub. The vaccine that the FDA just recommended does not even protect against infants against COVID. With all the data manipulation going on, the numbers are still dismal. According to Stat News, in clinical trials of children six through 23 months of age, the Moderna vaccine was 50.6% effective in preventing symptomatic COVID. 
Among participants two through five years of age, it was 36.8% effective. How can such low efficacy rates be acceptable? And then she says this, imagine a medication to help regulate insulin levels or prevent unwanted pregnancies that was only 37% effective. Yeah. Would you, feel, would you feel confident taking it? Or let alone being mandated to take? But it seems the vaccines make up for what they lack in effectiveness by causing side effects. Both vaccines can cause symptoms such as fever, fatigue, achiness, irritability, and decreased appetite. Fever, fatigue, aches and pains, irritability, and lack of appetite might seem mild side effects for adults, but for six-month-old babies, side effects like these can quickly escalate into serious life-threatening health issues. So let's call a spade a spade, as Dr. Joe Wang, a molecular geneticist and former vaccine developer, and I said in a recent article, giving COVID-19 vaccines to children is criminal and must be stopped. Parents, it's on you now. Do not go along with this charade. Do not allow a doctor or a nurse or anyone else to jab a needle in your child's thigh. Those 10 million doses that Joseph Biden has at the ready, the only place they should go is in the trash. Jennifer Margulis. We love her. Okay. I'm going to okay. take a, I'm taking a deviation from my plan because somebody sent me something yesterday. I met with one of my old breach clients to have a conversation about the Indie Birth Sanctuary. Uh -huh. And because uh, she's high profile, and we had a we had, I had juice, she had a tea, and we sat at a restaurant in Brentwood, and we talked, and she told me something, and I'm going to mention a name because I'm me, but she said she got an email from a pediatrician in this town who used to be considered the most natural alternative pediatrician in town. He's written several books. His name is Jay Gordon. And maybe a lot of you know who he is, mm -hmm. but something's happened to Jay Gordon in the last year or two. Um, he used to be vaccine. I wouldn't call him vaccine hesitant, but he used to be amenable to people not getting vaccines and also to um, altering the schedule and doing things to yeah, accommodate absolutely. them. Yeah. And he was anti-medication. Um, he didn't, he, he was very hands-off. We can all miss diagnoses at times. Sometimes I, I, I know of a case where he missed a diagnosis because he was hands-off, but that's probably okay because of all the times he didn't overdiagnose kids and give them treatment that they wouldn't have needed, like antibiotics or insulin or other things that they wouldn't have needed. But this is what he sent out to all his patients or their families. Okay, vaccines for our young children. Moderna and Pfizer vaccines have been approved for children six months and older. I recommend these vaccines for the kids in my care. Okay, I'm pausing for effect. Not that he says that, it, you know, maybe a good idea, not a good idea. I accept anybody's decision. He recommends them. So let's see why he recommends them. Moderna vaccines confer immunity faster. Do they? Immunity. Pfizer vaccines have been given to more children, which is somewhat reassuring. They are both okay. There's a, there's a definitive medical word and look safe to me. I am certain that children getting COVID after vaccination is lower risk than getting COVID without vaccination. All right. Well, so he's admitting by children getting COVID after vaccination that the vaccine doesn't prevent children from getting COVID. 
-hmm. So good for him on that. But he says that the, 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 it's the lower risk than getting COVID without the vaccination. Um, there's no data to say that whatsoever. The numbers of kids that have been harmed by at, at that age group, six months to 24 months from COVID, I mean, how many have been hospitalized? How many have died? Like, I think uh, Rand Paul asked that question of Anthony Fauci at a recent Senate hearing, and Fauci went off on a tangent about old people. And the answer Rand Paul then gave was none. There are no studies that show that any children have been injured or, or hospitalized or died in that age group. <laughs> Your cat has something to say about that. My, my cat has a, has a toy mouse and she wants me to play with her. All right. Uh, I don't know if you guys could pick that up on the, on the microphone, but if Bliss could, you probably can. She got really loud there. Um, and by the way, is prevention of COVID in a toddler actually decreasing the risk to that toddler? Because now you're preventing that COVID by giving them something that actually has a whole new side set of risks. And there's an old ad, an old meme that came went around a long time ago that said, you know, nothing is 100% certain, but I am certain of the fact that I, I'll never get a vaccine side effect if I don't get the vaccine. Yes. Right. So then he goes on, he says, the doses are small. Testing was short. And one, and one subtitle for this email could have been better than nothing. But the kids' shots are really far, far better than nothing. The vaccine appears safe. We have given 1 billion mRNA vaccines in the US and billions throughout the world. Well, that's a non sequitur. What does that have to do with giving it to kids who are six months of age? Yes, we've given lots of vaccines, therefore we should give you vaccines too. I mean, there's something about the thinking and I, and I know Jay, and mm -hmm. if I ever run into him again, I'm sure he'll not be happy about it, but I will have this conversation with him and find out, try to find out. But these people generally don't want to have a conversation with someone who challenges them. So it'll be really interesting to see whether he does. Oh, he's, um, um, he's willing to talk to us. Yeah. Well, maybe we should get him on the podcast. He's willing to. I already asked him. But that was before this letter came out though, right? Yeah, but he's willing to. Okay. Um, kids vaccines will prevent many cases of serious illness and hundreds of children's deaths. Right? There's no data to say that. He doesn't, there, there's nothing. Because there aren't, there aren't thousands and thousands and thousands of cases of kids getting seriously ill in that age group from COVID. And there are almost no reported deaths from COVID in, in children in, in that age group. Moderna's schedule confers immunity quicker. Um, but Pfizer's favor is the fact that for a few months we've given, been giving a similar shot to the six to 10 year olds. And we know that what's happened in the six to 10 year olds. Well, it's only been a few months. How do we know? Right. Right. So there's no long-term study. So the fact that you give something to somebody for a couple months says that it's safe to give it to another group, another population is it's, it's not, it's nonsensical. It's not, it's not even scientific. It's, it's, it's a flaw in inductive logic. And inductive logic of any part of your argument, um, you know, inductive logic gives gives uh, probability but never certainty. And a deductive logical argument gives, you know, if any part of the argument falls apart, then the whole argument is uh, it doesn't hold water. So if he's trying to make this as these points for some sort of logical argument, it, 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 neither 
inductive nor deductive logic hold true here? Well, his clients trust him. So him just writing the letter to say, I believe that this is safe for most people, that's enough from a doctor that you respect. Yeah, that's what's scary about this sort of thing. Then he sort of talks in, in like, like human language, which he says, okay, immunity in six weeks from Moderna and not for three months from Pfizer, score a big one for Moderna. But wait, you have a higher risk person in your house or close to you, grandma, pregnant mom, you want full immunity faster? Hello, Moderna. Um, for better or worse, I'm ignoring all numbers about effectiveness. I'm not even sure what that means. <laughs> um, research on the two vaccines was conducted differently and the case numbers and complication rate are quite low to begin with. Instead, I'm dealing with this difficult dis uh, discussion conceptually. I'm not sure what that means. Progression from infection in your nose to serious illness in your body depends on prior immunity, preferably from vaccination. Why? Why? That's, that defies everything we know about science, that people who've had COVID have better immunity. All right. No matter what research numbers say, protection against serious illness is holding up very well in all prior age groups and will almost definitely do the same for young children. All right. So he says, no matter what research numbers say, what would imply to me that research numbers don't support his position, because <laughs> otherwise, why would you say that? So if, if the research numbers don't say that, then why, is, why are you saying that? Oh, let's just ignore the data that's not fit to our argument. Mm -hmm. And then he says, pediatric vaccines are safe, but he gives no definition of what safe means. These vaccines will prevent serious illness and death, actually millions of cases and hundreds of deaths in toddlers, really, based on, again, I don't know if we talked a little bit about mass formation and the idea that, that what makes people who are intelligent think in a certain way, um, defying all sort of logic or, or even ethical medical behavior about informed consent and about skewing your uh, your counseling but it but it but he has a comment coming up which which you'll love you'll know exactly when i get to it it's hard to calculate whether or not they'll de they'll decrease viral spread but i think they will and then he writes another no data zone and i wrote no it's not no data in adults we know that it doesn't decrease viral spread in adults there were no vaccine-induced cases of myocarditis, but the studies were too small to detect this very rare side effect. Well, that's sort of a big deal, that, that the, two, the studies are too small. We know myocarditis is something that affects teenage boys more than, any, more than else, and also men. And now we have this thing called sudden adult death syndrome, which is you know, baffling, baffling to doctors. They don't understand it. Um, he says the vaccines are continuing to work against Omicron variants. I don't think that that's true either. Um, LA County is on a very predictable trajectory towards another indoor mask mandate. He thinks the 4th of July is gonna happen. Maybe he's got inside information. Mm -hmm. Good reason to be out of town for the 4th of July. <laughs> okay, so he says, if you or a loved one are at high risk for COVID complications based on your age, 60, plus or underlying medical conditions, you qualify for treatment with Paxlovid, Remdesivir, or monoclonal antibodies. And I wrote Paxlovid has lots of side effects. Remde Remdesivir doesn't work. 
And monoclonal antibodies, I, I don't know, but for a while they were very hard to get. Um, if you are a high risk and your doctor wants you to wait and see how you're doing, you need a new doctor. Well, I would agree with that, All right? Paxlovid at first looks like a wonder drug until we saw the rebounds. The rebounds could be because Paxlovid suppresses proper immune system response to coronavirus 19, and there are consequences on days eight through 10. So wait a minute. So let's give Paxlovid, but it looks like Paxlovid causes problems. I don't know what he's talking about. As best you can, oh, then he's talking about, um, oh, uh, as best you can, and then he goes on to talk about board, the air, board an airplane and wait for the jetway to clear. Before ventilation is turned on, the viral content of the airplane is two to 10 times greater. I don't know where he gets that from either. Um, are there, but I would say, are there, is there any study that shows that people traveling on airplanes are getting COVID at a higher rate? And I think the answer is no, there are none, which is part of, sort of why they lifted the max mandate on TSA. He says, do not wear surgical masks indoors, get better masks. And uh, when you have an appointment in our office, please wear an N95 or KN95 mask. Ignore the latest news stories. Vaccines do decrease transmission. Why would he say that? Thoughts? <laughs> I don't. I don't know. It's motivating Jay okay. Gordon. I don't, I don't know if it's because he's older and he's higher risk, or if he's had someone close to him who died, or. You know, I mean, I don't know what his personal story is with COVID, but it's very obvious that he's um, changed his tune in regards to this particular virus. And then he says, lastly, he says, I strongly rep recommend COVID vaccines, but they will never be a precondition for your child's care in our office. If I can't present the facts to you well enough to convince you, the failure is mine. I'm going to leave it at that. There's a, there's a whole lot more, but I'm, I'm just, I'm, the point is made. That, that very very much sounds like ACOG's uh, guidelines to obstetricians that, that if you're counseling people about taking the vaccine and they don't do it, then you haven't counseled them right. Exactly, yeah. As opposed to the idea that people could possibly have an alternative thought process. Okay. So let's get to our topic because we're... we're uh, I, think, we're, I think we're pretty long. Yeah, we're going to get it to the topic right now anyway. Because okay. I, I promise, I promise that I got to talk about Steve Clark's article. So, you know, I, I, I want you to chime in when you can, but I, I want to get this on the record and then we can just chat about it afterwards. Okay. Okay. I just felt that that was so important because it tied in with Jennifer's thing and it tied in with the questions about transfusion, the question about breastfeeding, all that stuff. It, 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 it's not that unclear anymore. And when people like Dr. Gordon are so certain subjectively that you should do this without any real objective evidence to support it, that it's really confusing to me. Just yeah. confusing. Future, oh, you're done? Yeah. Okay, yeah, all right, thank you. That was uh, Billy, the air conditioning guy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, um, We've talked a lot about fetal heart rate monitoring and in the, I think the data is pretty clear in the, oh yes, we have in the past. Not, not, not specifically. No, not yeah. specifically, but we've talked yeah. about how continuous fetal heart rate monitoring, really there's no evidence to support that it does has done anything to lower the risk of cerebral palsy and yet it's pretty much universal. Uh, neither, neither one has done, neither, 
neither that nor intermittent monitoring has ever done anything to lower the rate of cerebral palsy. Right. So monitoring doesn't do that, even though the intention initially was to prevent death in labor, which it actually has done. There are less interpartum deaths with monitoring, whether it be con continuous or intermittent, but it hasn't prevented brain damage or other issues like that. Which so the they, question they think now probably has more to do with something prenatally than than actually what's happening in labor. So yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. But we're now stuck with this ball and chain of continuous fetal monitoring. And so Steve Clark We're not stuck, but yes. Steve Clark really takes a deep dive into it in an academic situation in the Green Journal which right. is ACOG's journal. So, you know, he's got the gravitas to get things published there and I respect him for it. So he says this on category two, interpartum fetal heart rate patterns unassociated with recognized sentinel events. A sentinel event? What's that? A sentinel event will be like a placental abruption or cord prolapse. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the evolution of continuous electronic fetal heart rate monitoring has presented the obstetrician with a critical clinical conundrum. Basic science observations suggest that such monitoring might be associated with improved long-term neurologic outcomes. Yet, after half century of use and millions of cesarean deliveries, based on fetal heart rate monitoring, evidence for such improvement remains absent. Yes. These misconceptions are strengthened by a reliance on anecdotal experience and tradition in lieu of evidence-based medicine, the confusing category two fetal heart rate designation, medical legal considerations, and our tendency to view fetal monitoring as originally conceptualized as a single indivisible entity whose concepts must be accepted or rejected in block. Ill-defined and largely imaginary conditions such as depletion of fetal reserve are particularly harmful and their use in clinical medicine uniquely not evidence-based. So how often do we say, you know, fetal intolerance to labor or decreased fetal reserve is a common thing that's used to justify taking a woman to C-section. Uh, the second most uh, used reason to have a C-section. First is? Previous C-section? Previous failure, failure to progress. Yeah. Baby in utero? No. <laughs> failure to progress is number one. This okay. is number Thank you for saying that. That's great. Mm -hmm. uh, so you found your notes, which I love. Electronic fetal heart rate monitoring, or FHR, was originally developed as a means of avoiding un unexpected interpartum fetal demise. As such, this tool has been incredibly effective. Interpartum stillbirth is virtually never seen today in a monitored fetus. Since that time, however, electronic fetal heart rate monitoring has experienced, quote, mission creep, unquote, based on the hope that such monitoring would allow the detection and delivery of fetuses who do not tolerate the progressive metabolic acidemia universally associated with normal labor, mm -hmm. thus avoiding hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy and cerebral palsy. So we all know that as labor progresses, the fetal pH drops. That's true in all mammals, but in all labors. But the question is, is it actually relevant to outcomes? Because it's normal to do that. Uh -huh. In the ensuing 70 years, this hope has evolved into theory. The theory into practice and the practice into a standard of care leading to cesarean delivery out of concern for fetal well-being 
in approximately half of the more than 1 million women undergoing cesarean delivery in the United States every year. This has occurred with, so basically he's saying half of the cesareans performed in the United States, and there's more than a million, it's about a million three, mm-hmm. are being done for calling fetal heart rate abnormalities. Right. Right. Non-reassuring fetal heart tones. Correct. This has occurred without any evidence that delivery based on any single or combination of fetal heart rate patterns reduces the rate of cerebral palsy or any other permanent long-term adverse neurological outcome. Mm-hmm. Any, and, and by the way, in this article, he cites, got reference after reference after reference. So this is not an opinion piece. This is a, it is, it's a, uh, it's a powerful piece because it's referenced and, and, and because he's such a smart guy. And I don't say that just because I agree with him on this, because there's things that Steve Clark has said in the past that I haven't agreed with him. I kind of, I kind of have a affinity for him simply because he was at my institution when I trained there. Yeah. Um, the rate of cerebral palsy remains stable two to three per thousand births between 1985 and 2010. Decades that witnessed both the incorporation of electronic fetal heart rate monitoring into general practice and a dramatic rise in cesarean delivery rates based on such monitoring. So he doesn't, he doesn't mince words. He's just saying that the C-section rate is right, rose because of continuous monitoring. Mm-hmm. Even in low resource nations in which continuous fetal monitoring and expeditious cesarean delivery are unavailable to most women, rates of cerebral palsy, two to 2.8 per thousand births are virtually identical to those seen in the United States. A meta-analysis of several trials of continuous fetal monitoring compared with intermittent auscultation confirmed no benefit in terms of either core pH, neonatal death, or cerebral palsy. And that's, yes. that's the famous one we always talk about. Yes. With tens of millions of neonates born by cesarean delivery in the United States since the widespread adoption of interpartum fetal heart rate monitoring, consideration of the intervention effect of such deliveries alone makes this lack of demonstrable benefit even more puzzling. If any significant percentage of cerebral palsy cases arising owing to a process of gradual asphyxiation during labor could be prevented by early termination of labor, even the random termination of labor in 20% of all women and its avoidance altogether in an additional 15% of women undergoing repeat cesarean delivery, which is a rate of about 35%, um, would be expected to result in a measurable decrease in the rate of cerebral palsy. So in other words, if we prevent, if, if, if C-section or interventions is gonna prevent cerebral palsy and you're doing one third of all women are being born by C-section, why haven't we seen at least a third drop in the rate of cerebral palsy? Is mm-hmm. what he's saying. Targeted use of fetal heart rate monitoring in this decision-making process should surely have produced an even larger effect if any significant percentage of cases of cerebral palsy actually have their origin during the intrapartum period and can be prevented by the use of electronic fetal heart rate monitoring. Many studies examining the incidence of cerebral palsy arising during labor uh, involve circular reasoning based on a false premise. Fetuses with normal fetal heart rate tracings at the onset of labor are presumed to be neurologically intact, right? Yes. Yes, just say yes, okay. (laughs) Subsequent abnormal neonatal neurologic findings are then assumed to have arisen interpartum and have been causally related to the subtle fetal heart rate patterns often discernible only in retrospect with foreknowledge of the outcome by medical experts, obviously. They're looking back at something where baby's bad. Oh, look at this dip, look at that dip. But if you compare it to babies that are perfectly normal, they'll also have, oh, look at that dip, look at this dip. 
-hmm. That's what he's saying. Investigations into the radiologic timing of fetal central nervous system injury are often similarly flawed. Radiologic findings in neonates with brain damage who are arbitrarily declared to have been neurologically intact at the onset of labor are pronounced to be diagnostic of intrapartum injury and then subsequent use to define the timing of injury in other cases without questioning the initial premise. I hope I'm being clear about this. Clearly, unless normal pre-labor neurologic development and function can be documented, neither interpartum fetal heart rate patterns nor abnormal postnatal imaging can be viewed as reliable indicators of the timing of such injuries. How many doctors have been sued? How many hospitals have been sued because a baby came out with a problem that they blamed on something that has no evidence that that something actually caused it, except when you have sentinel events, which we'll get to in a second. How do we explain the chasm separating basic science theory from clinical reality? Why do we persist in a practice that is no, not only non-evidence-based, but clearly refuted by the available evidence? Made worse by the lumping together into a single category to several different fetal heart rate patterns with vastly disparate physiologic origins. Okay, so we can talk a little bit about tracings here, which is sort of what you kind of wanted to talk about today. So briefly, a category one fetal heart rate tracing simply indicates that the fetus is, at the particular moment in time, neither hypoxic nor experiencing an arterial pH below 7.15. It says nothing at all about fundamental developmental neurologic integrity of the fetus. Even an anencephalic fetus representing perhaps the extreme development of central nervous system abnormality may demonstrate a normal fetal heart rate variability and accelerations. Process of normal Can I, labor. Go ahead. Do you want me to do you want me to maybe do a simpler explanation? Sure. Of category one and two. Okay. Just do so category cat one because just do category one. Yes. Category one, this is a this is normal and does not require intervention. Okay. What is category two? Category two is called indeterminate and may require evaluation, monitoring, and possible quote-unquote corrective measures, such as position changes, giving IV fluids, giving the mother oxygen, giving drugs to slow down contractions, or putting warm fluids in the uterus. Okay. Right. That may not all be true anymore because they're lumping everything together, as I'm going to describe. They're lumping mm -hmm. together all the different things in category two tracings. Mm -hmm. But what's important and what Dr. Clark says is that the human fetus has evolved to tolerate these acidotic changes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but I made Stu a face. Yeah. yeah, Stu did a whole gesture that it doesn't translate on a podcast. <laughs> well, maybe we'll make this into a clip because what I'm saying is, is that babies that are chronically stressed, we know will adapt to that stress. And the one example that I give that I've spoken about maybe a couple of times before on the podcast is when I was new in practice, I had a woman come in with seizures and had a baby's heart rate was in the eighties. And it took us about an hour and a half to get her stabilized. We finally took the mom to surgery to deliver the baby after we got her stabilized. Heart rate was still flat and down and uglier than sin. And the cord pH showed a pH of about 6.8 something which is really not compatible with life. And that baby, although it was growth restricted, which is probably part of the reason it was prepared to tolerate that environment because it probably didn't happen suddenly. The baby had been stressed for weeks, maybe months. Um, that baby perfectly, was perfectly normal and grew up to be a perfectly normal, 
healthy daughter mm-hmm. now who now somewhere in her 20s someplace um so the human fetus can tolerate acidosis i think that the nurses and the doctors are the ones who can't tolerate acidosis okay so fewer than 15 percent of neonates undergoing cesarean delivery for fetal heart rate patterns demonstrate features felt to arise from significant acidemia are actually acidemic at birth so if you think you're doing a c-section for a tracing that's worrisome 85 percent of those babies are going to have a normal ph and normal APGARs, five-minute APGAR scores. Yeah, we just don't know, right? Yes. You just don't know which ones are going to do that and which ones aren't. In one recent series, an equal number of neonates with a pH below 7 and a pH above 7.15 went to cooling blankets for presumed hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. Because all fetal heart rate patterns are, to a large extent, mediated by the central nervous system, it follows that abnormal, subtle category 2 fetal heart rate patterns associated with a Identifiable causative sentinel event in most cases simply represent atypical neurologically mediated response to the normal stress of labor. Such stress is tolerated well by the fetus with an intact central nervous system, regardless of the atypical fetal heart rate pattern. Hence, the very low positive predictive value of abnormal tracings for neonatal acidemia at birth. I know that was a big word salad there, but ultimately it says what I just said before is that what he's saying is that 85% of babies that are taken for emergency C-section for what is suspected to be hypoxia don't have hypoxia or acidemia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, earlier delivery does not change the underlying injury for babies that are already pre-injured. So if a baby suffered an injury three, three weeks ago, yeah. all right, now it comes in has a, as a tracing that's category two, and you say, well, we better section that baby. That isn't going to change the outcome, but it does change the outcome for that mother and for all the mother's future babies. And we have no way of determining that sort of thing. But we need to understand that fetal heart rate monitoring is not very good at predicting these sorts of things. And yet we're using it in a very negative way to lead to all these unnecessary C-sections. Okay. In contrast to subtle category two patterns, you asked this question, Bliss. Sentinel events known to cause neurologic injuries such as placental abruption, cord prolapse, or uterine rupture are typically associated with more dramatic category two patterns as defined, um, well, you know, where you see these really deep D cells and these um, hyperactive uh, shoulderings afterwards, or they never gets back to baseline or prolonged bradycardias. These are different things. However, because such events would generally have been recognized and acted upon based on clinical findings, or auscultated fetal heart rate alone, the addition of electronic fetal heart rate evidence of fetal jeopardy would not be expected to have a measurable effect on outcomes. So it wouldn't change; it doesn't change anything, even with a sentinel event. Because a sentinel event, you got a ruptured uterus, you got an abruption or a cord prolapse. Those are clinical diagnoses. You pick those things up. Yeah. You might hear them if you're, if you're intermittently auscultating. You might hear deeper, deeper variables. Five minutes before, ten minutes before, who knows? But you don't need continuous fetal monitoring to pick that up. Right. Okay. So he says evidence should trump tradition. Most practitioners of obstetrics have been trained with an almost religious belief in the value of electronic fetal heart rate monitoring based on faith, not evidence. Concern for the identification of subtle fetal heart rate changes often dominates both educational material and our management of labor and delivery. 
Acceptance of the fact that much of this perceived wisdom represents fantasy is, for most of us, difficult. Cognitive dissonance at its best. Our misconceptions are reinforced when we repeatedly intervene on such tracings and, not surprisingly, deliver a vigorous neonate. Quote, another save, unquote. <laughs> this normalization of deviance, God, I love that term. Let's remember that term, normalization of deviance, in which personal anecdotal experiences trumps evidence-based medicine remains pervasive in medicine. Although we commonly discuss the poor positive predictive value of an abnormal fetal heart rate tracing for the identification of fetal acidemia, we perpetuate the mystique of electronic fetal heart rate monitoring by emphasizing the apparent amazing sensitivity of this tool for the prediction of a non-acidemic neonate. In reality, recent data suggests that simply having a non-anomalous term neonate carries with it a 99.9% .9 sensitivity for a non-asphyxiated neonate at birth. So it's not the fetal heart rate monitor that's telling you your baby's okay. It's the fact that your baby is okay that's telling us the baby's okay. 99.9% yeah. of babies who walk into labor and delivery you know, who are non-anomalous are going to be okay. Yet, how many of those are going to end up with a C-section? Because they, in the normal process of labor, developed some changes on the fetal heart rate monitor that are physiologically normal, but are causing the alarm to go off and the nurse to come in and the parents to get worried and the doctor to be called. And, and now everybody's worried about uh, getting a baby that's bad. So we better go to do a C-section now. And then we got a great baby and see what would, what would have happened if this had been going on at home, that whole thing we talk about all the time. And also it's not defensible. Part, what, say that again, explain that, explain that. It means that um, if you had, you know, because of the way that we ha are, have been practicing for the last 50 years now, um, if you've got a bad, quote unquote, bad tracing, um, and, and you don't go in for a C-section and there's a bad outcome that may have happened regardless, um, you, you could be sued. So that is why they're doing more of them. And it's, um, because the, um, court system and that whole thing is going to rely on these tracings. That's where you're, when you said in the beginning that you feel shackled to this, that doctors um, or this profession feel shackled to it is because that's, that's um, how the standard of care is right now, but things can change. And they're going to change. So I don't want us to believe that they no, can't change and they going, should in this regards, because the evidence doesn't support it and hasn't supported it for since the beginning of using them, they were right. used from a marketing tool and used um, as something that was an experiment in the beginning. And, you know, it's not working. It's not, it's not giving the outcome that they believed that it would. Liz, you know what time it is? It's time to talk about bamboobies. Yeah, we love to talk about bamboobies because it's the greatest word in the English language. Because <laughs> you get to say boobies. <laughs> I do. I get to say boobies several times during the Bamboobies commercial. <laughs> so Bamboobies uh, is a company that supports us. They have for a long time now. They make uh, natural products out of bamboo. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your favorites? Yeah, well, bamboo is a is a renewable resource that's awesome. Um, and I love the heart-shaped reusable breast pads that are nice and soft and have that awesome shape so that 
you don't see them through your clothing, which if you've breastfed, you know that that is, uh, it's a great thing, but they've expanded their line so much now. And they have, um, nursing tanks and they have all these amazing teas, um, for different phases of your pregnancy and postpartum. Um, they have salves and nipple bombs. Um, so I'm, I'm so glad that I get to continue to have a relationship with them and they are doing such wonderful things to support the comfort of mom and baby. Yeah. And we love that they're focusing on the comfort for moms, both physically and emotionally with products to support the pregnancy, the bre- uh, breastfeeding and beyond. So go to um, bamboobies.com and use the code word or backslash instincts. That's I-N-S-T-I-N-C-S uh, at boobies.com and you will get 25% off your purchase. So that's bamboobies.com code word instincts. Thanks, bamboobies. Thanks, bamboobies. And I think Dr. Clark wants, wants it to change. And I And I think it's really interesting to see that, again, the medical model, which is supposedly the gold standard, and we're all supposed to believe in the medical model, bases so much of its policies and and protocols on stuff that is not only not science, not evidence-based, but but the evidence is against it, as as he says so eloquently. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he says, concepts such as depletion of fetal reserve, which is a term that we've heard before. Mm-hmm. have crept into the obstetric lexicon without any physiologic-based definition or even evidence of its actual existence. So that's pretty uh, powerful stuff. Yeah. Contributing to our own perpetuation of, the, of this obstetric fable, got to love the words he's using here. <laughs> current medical legal concerns have, to a large extent, boxed us into continuing to act on the myth of gradual depletion of fetal reserve by the process of labor leading to cerebral palsy, which is a more complicated way of saying what you just what you just said. <laughs> uh, you know, academicians they talk that way, but that's that's okay. Um, we are forced, in essence, to pledge by our actions, beliefs in this belief in this fallacy, if we are to continue to practice obstetrics, despite the untold maternal morbidity that results from this approach. Given that any child with neurologic impairment, an expert can be found to extract from the medical record some abnormal feature of the fetal heart rate or labor and link it to the injury. As long as experts without any actual expertise (laughs) are allowed to testify in these matters and express opinions clearly refuted by evidence-based medicine and rejected by the scientific community, things are like unlikely to change. Got it. Yep. Okay. If we are not to continue this path for the next 30 years, several steps would seem advisable. So this is what you wanted to hear. Publications describing electronic fetal heart rate monitoring must make clear the documented lack of benefit of such monitoring in preventing neurologic injury in language that cannot possibly be misinterpreted. (laughs) So we'll speak very slowly so you will understand. Second, a revision of the category two designation is badly needed. Subtle category two patterns, which in the past have been viewed as potentially indicating progressive sublethal injury, like late D cells, minimal variability, fetal tachycardia, should be differentiated from those that may aid in identifying and managing a sentinel event, such as uterine rupture, placental abruption, or umbilical cord prolapse where the cord is compromised, each of which is generally manifested by repetitive, severe, and prolonged variable decelerations. But they're all included together in category two tracing. And that's a huge problem. Mm -hmm. 
That's like, in, you know, mm-hmm. we're going to count, we're going to count mammals and we're going to include elephants and uh, hedgehogs in the, in the same census. <laughs> you wouldn't do that. Okay. Well, not exactly like that, but you get it. Okay. Yeah, we get it. Such a reclassification would allow us to unambiguously define standards of care for the management of category one and three fatal heart rate patterns while stating definitively that no standard of care exists for the management of category two tracings, given the complete lack of evidence of benefit for any approach to these fetal heart rate patterns. Part of me says, how about just getting rid of all electronic fetal monitoring? Since it hasn't done any good, why do we need it for category one tracings? And category three tracings, you probably would, again, hear that with auscultation, intermittent auscultation anyway. So Um, when you say get rid of electronic fetal monitoring, you mean continuous? Yes. You mean continuous monitoring, not necessarily the ability to use it at all. Well, you could argue that a woman who's got no complaints in labor that are consistent with the sentinel events we talked about, Mm -hmm. does monitoring really make that much of a difference? Any monitoring? Any monitoring. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm, I'm putting that out there. All right. I don't know that it, I don't know that it really does. There are plenty of midwives out there who don't monitor their fetuses. Are their outcomes significantly worse in morbidity and mortality? And not just the endpoint that, you know, I always talk about neonatal death or baby in the bassinet, but all the other endpoints that are, that have validity. Do there are their outcomes overall worse? And I would argue that they're probably not. I don't know that that will ever be compared in a quality sort of way. But if you right. ask the home birth people, if you ask the Christine Laurias of the world, uh, those sorts of things, that they don't see that kind of a problem when they don't monitor, if they don't, if they don't have access to monitoring. Well, the thing is, is that, um, you know, if we talk about labor and birth and all of that being a natural process and that we are intended to, to survive this, process, then most of the time things are just going to work out whether you monitor the baby or not. So, you know, our, our logic about this is that hopefully we can catch things that could possibly indicate that a baby is not doing well before there's an event that we can't avoid any longer. So if you're not listening, sometimes you won't be able to hear those, uh, heart tones that are incredibly non-reassuring that no you know yeah no you said something about shouldering i didn't know what that term that's where the that's where the rebound heart rate goes way up high above the baseline Uh, yeah rebound that's after it after it yeah yeah yeah. it looks it looks like a shoulder yeah i would i would would agree with you though i mean because i think it is agreed as it said in the early in this article that that this sort of monitoring whether it be continuous or or intermittent did lower the rate of interpartum stillbirth so there is some advantage to listening. I'm just saying that is the advantage to listening mm-hmm. um, that much greater than the, the detriment to listening. And I'm not I'm not making a statement against against uh, monitoring. I'm just putting it out there that despite all the, the people who think that monitoring is a good idea, it's obviously not done anything really wonderful and maybe done more harm than good. All right, what else can we do to uh, get this to change? Third, a professional organization should make clear 
that any allegation that cesarean delivery in an individual patient based on any single or combination of fetal heart rate features not associated with a recognized sentinel event would likely have reduced the risk of cerebral palsy in a child represents the very definition of junk science. Such opinions are not only not generally accepted in the scientific community, but universally rejected. In other words, if an organization came out and said that you can't use these heart rate tracings, these minimal changes as a determination when to, when to like throw in the towel and do a C-section, um, they would, um, they would be laughed out of existence. They, they, those organizations will never do that, but that's what they should be doing, but they won't. Finally, obstetricians need to realize that we are unique among medical specialties in our willingness to perform hundreds of thousands of major operative procedures each year, not only without any evidence of benefit, but with strong evidence of non-benefit. Initial enthusiasm for accepting this technology, this electronic monitoring, without demanding firm evidence of benefit has left current practitioners in an untenable situation in which myth has replaced reality, yet we are realistically prevented by the current legal system from getting off this train, even if our own anecdotal biases could be overcome. Right. Right. That's what I said. <laughs> right. That's right. Uh, to, see this in, to see this in print, and he goes on to talk about a few other things, but for sake of time, we'll just, we'll just call, it, call it there. But I think people, if people want the article, it'll be in the show notes, the, the link to the article. Uh-huh. And, and um, do you have other things? Are there other things? I know that you did a little bit of research. Do you want to just talk a little bit other things about your tracings or, oh, dead? Yeah. Oh. We, went, we went a little long. My notes are dead and the time is up. So I think that's the universe saying, that's enough for today. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what, Bliss? I, I know that some podcasts are different than others, but I, I just feel like, feel like there's, a, there's a change coming. Yeah, there's a sea change coming. Uh, the 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 veil has been ripped off, and people are seeing the medical industrial complex much more clearly now. And people that were in the you know there are people who will always be zealots for that side, and they'll, they'll never change. There's always those that ten or twenty percent, but those people in the middle that you know just went along with the flow. Mm -hmm. If they're doing any research, if they're doing any reading, if they're, if they're, if they're looking at not just at uh, things like our podcast or your website or that sort of thing, but if they're reading in the mainstream media, if they're looking on Substack at people like Jen Margulis or Glenn Greenwald or, or Charles Eisenstein, if they're looking, reading their articles or Barry Weiss, or, I mean, there's so many, I could go on and on, uh, Cheryl Atkinson. If they're, if they're, um, reading stuff that's that's written by independent journalists outside the mainstream where they're not influenced by big pharma, big business. They don't have a master that's telling them what they can and cannot write. They don't have their, their, their papers uh, censored or edited. Like I can't, you know, I mean, I'm not an academician. I don't really want to publish in the Green Journal, but there's no way that if I ever wanted to, I would ever get something in there. They just won't, they won't do it, even if it's really, really good. Um, because it makes the peer reviewers and stuff like that too uncomfortable. Yeah. But I think they're getting more and more uncomfortable. And I think it's important that they do. Agreed. It's time for a change. And I'm glad that you're feeling that things are changing. That's good. So um, thanks for listening, everybody. 
Um, <laughs> why are you laughing? <laughs> I don't know. Because I don't know. Because it didn't go the way that we had talked about, but that's okay because we're fluid and flexible. So we do hope that you enjoyed today's episode. <laughs> uh, Stu had to get some things off of his chest that he was waiting and waiting on. So I'm glad that you got those off your chest and um, it was good to see you. It's always good to see you too. And uh, yeah. you know what? That's the thing with us. We <laughs> we make a plan. We don't always stick with it. We <laughs> don't always agree. Uh, but Again, uh, love triumphs over all. That's right. Okay. Stu called an audible today, and that's just the way that it went. So we it wasn't will... that much of an audible. I just I couldn't resist the the, the tie in with the with the letter from Dr. Gordon's office. I just yeah. I, I, yeah. I it, it just fit in, and 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 and, the, and the, I want people to hear this stuff before they start going out and getting their their six month old kids vaccinated. Yeah, I get it. I get it. So um, thank you for all that you do and uh, for your story time today. And we love you. And, and thank you. For, and thank you. And thank you for the long goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Until bliss. next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 